Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Hashtag Clocked In with me, your host, Jordan Edwards. I'm thrilled to have you tune in as we dive into the dynamic world of productivity, success, and stories of incredible individuals who've mastered the art of getting things done. Whether you're commuting, hitting the gym, or just relaxing at home, this podcast is the go-to source for inspiration and actionable tips to level up your productivity game. I'm on a mission to unravel the secrets of those who seem to effortlessly manage their time and achieve their goals. So if you're ready to clock in and unlock your full potential, you're in the right place. We've got a lineup of amazing guests, industry experts, and thought leaders who will share their insights and strategies to help us crush your to-do list and make the most out of every moment. Get ready to get inspired, motivated, and equipped with the tools you need to supercharge your productivity. This is Hashtag Clocked In with Jordan Edwards. Let's dive in. Hey, what's going on, guys? I've got a special guest today here. We have Mark Willis, a certified financial planner, a three-time number one best-selling author, and owner of the Lake Growth Financial Services, a financial service firm in Chicago, Illinois. He's also a co-host of Not Your Average Financial Podcast. And over the years, he's helped hundreds of his clients take back control of their financial future and build their business with proven, tax-efficient financial solutions, unknown to the most financial gurus. He's become known as Not Your Average Financial Planner. Mark, welcome. Jordan, glad to be on, man. Thank you. Yeah, we're excited to have you here on the Clocked In Podcast. So, Mark, where does your story start off? I'm going to go further back than probably you expect. Um, we're looking at age five here. All right. So uh, the story, my story with money, at, at least, starts around that age. And somehow, some way, as a little kid, I'd accumulated about 50 bucks to my name through, you know, allowance and lemonade stands, that sort of thing. And at that point, my mom had made it her mind to take me to the bank and open up a checking account for a little kid because she wanted, I guess, for me to understand how banks work and banking and fi- financial planning and that sort of thing. Now, realize I want to say right away, I didn't grow up with much money. My family didn't. We had love, but we didn't have a lot of money. So she's just kind of doing what she needs, wants to do as a parent, brings me there to the bank. Her job was to do the paperwork. And my only job was to give away In my little paper bag full of dollars and coins, give away all this money to a complete stranger. Now, how do you think that went as a five-year-old? Not good. (laughs) Uh, I was very skeptical, very, you know, reticent to give away all my life savings to a total stranger just because he said he'll take good care of it. Now, fast forward about, you know, a couple more years there, and now I'm six figures in student loan debt. Uh, and my wife and I are trying to shovel our way out in the midst of the Great Recession, oh and my God. no job, and and most importantly, no plan or strategy to paying off all that debt. Uh, that is a recipe for uh, desperation, and that's sort of what I guess was the beginnings of my financial journey. Uh, was was I, I had a higher net worth as a five year old than I did as a you know graduate of college, and. <laughs> The funny thing is, in regard to net worth, most people don't even know their own net worth. Most of the people would be surprised that I think what you just said is probably true for a majority of people. Because <laughs> the debt yeah. instrument can go both ways. That's right. That's right. And there's a 
there's a feeling that, hey, you know what? We're all going to just, um, it's good debt. That's what we've been sold, that it's all good debt to get a college degree. Well, I don't know if it's good debt, depending on the degree you get. My degree, yeah. you know, I learned some great skills in critical thinking, and I would never exchange it for for anything. But I will say that my degree was not exactly a marketable, you know, like job ready engineering, you know, business. I didn't get a degree in any of those things. Uh, I'm I'm glad for what I got my degree in, but it was not any of those sort of ready to go marketable job ready degrees. And so was my debt good? I don't know. I don't think so. Uh, it sure taught me some good lessons about money and it, I wouldn't be where I am now without those, you know, that six figure collar around my neck, uh, that other wife that I had, her name was Sally May. Um, and so I, I just don't think that, um, we should buy the, buy what they're selling us in terms of everybody must go to college. I don't think that's true. And I, I don't think that it's a good idea for us to shovel all the debt that we're currently about to forgive onto the American taxpayer either. Uh, it just creates such a moral hazard uh, for us to be yeah. able to say, all right, let's just raise the price of college even more because, hey, you know what? Someone else will pay for it. You know, uh, yeah. in this case, the American taxpayer. Absolutely. So when you were, let's just back up a little bit, just because one of the things I find really interesting is that component of when you're deciding to go to college, was this like a conversation you and your parents had? Was it a discussion of like, hey, Mark, you're going to have to take on some loans here. These It might be difficult to pay off or it was just, oh my God, we're so happy to have Mark go to college. Like, I think that was it. Yeah. There was a, um, you know, I think for many people, it's just a, it's just a shoe in already decided. It's just like so many things in our financial life. You know, for my college journey, it was just sort of assumed that college was in the future and we all knew it was going to be a stretch financially. We'd have to take out all sorts of debt. We'd have to rely on Pell Grants and and more because, again, we didn't come with much in the way of financial assets to pay for college. So uh, we we just knew that it was going to be a good deal. And we had been told we as a family had been sold this idea that college is you know, the pathway to riches, just like we had all been taught years ago that the house is a, an asset and everybody should own a home and there's never going to be a, you know, real estate crisis. House prices only go in one direction, Jordan, don't you know? Yeah. So that that uh, is among many myths that I was taught as a kid and as a young adult. College is always good debt. Buy a house, get a 401k, pay, you know, you know, pay for things with cash. All these things that you're just sort of told, but you don't really know why. And yeah. as as I got into becoming a certified financial planner, I really wanted to expose and explore some of those um, truisms, you might say, to see if yeah. that actually held water. Let's do the math on that. Is college really a, a valuable you know, use of your time? Or is it just a very expensive initiation ritual in our culture? <laughs> yeah, 100%. I mean... I've had similar feelings about college when I, when people come out and they say, Hey, we got this. If you're coming out with more debt than you're making, it is very difficult to pay off because one of the things that a lot of people might not realize is that compound interest works both ways. So like you can save and it can go up or you can owe a lot of money and it just keeps building. So compound interest goes up and down. So it can be a very intimidating um, process. When you come out, you're not 
not feeling the most secured about a job, not, not even sure you like it or love it or any of that. And you're just like, Oh my God, I have so much money. I owe. How am I ever going to get out of this? Yeah. Uh, I mean, the, the cost of tuition has dramatically risen over the last 70, 50, 60, even really the last 50 years since the seventies. Um, and it's remarkable how that's coincided with the printing of money and the expansion of the money supply when when um when the prices of college go up uh and the value of college degrees come down at some yeah. point there's going to be a breaking point you know at some point yeah. it's just like any bubble just like any market bubble if the yeah. price of something goes up too high and the value of something of that same something comes down at some point somebody's going to say it's not worth it and then the house of cards comes tumbling down. There's already very interesting alternatives to college that provide people with a pathway to a solid life and a degree that can even exceed. Now, think about it. You know, when you get a college degree, you're basically, and you get into debt like I did, you're having to go back on the starting line. You know, think of your life yeah. like a, your financial life is sort of like a marathon. And some people get put at the front of the race at the starting line and other people are way back in the crowd, you know, like me, yeah. uh, um, the slow ones. So they put me in the back, but if you get a, a mega student loan right at the start of your life, you're being pushed, you know, half a mile before you can even get to your starting line, uh, in your race. So I just like to, to ask, is that truly worth it to run and run and sweat and be, and get four five, six years into your life? You mentioned compound interest. The most powerful dollars you'll ever have are the dollars you had earliest in your life. That $50 in my paper bag as a five-year-old, what could that have compound grown to had I somehow invested that money as a five-year-old? If And if you can't handle being five-year-old investing, you know what if you had just skipped the college degree and started working and started putting yeah. money away? Would you have more money saved if you didn't get knocked down with like like me with $120,000 of student loan debt uh, right at the start of your life. What if I could have saved that two grand monthly payment instead of give it away to Sally Mae so she could retire instead? Yeah. And it's huge because that two grand a month is so difficult to even squander that up, let alone how do you have life going on? And then it's this, oh, you need a big wedding. You need a fancy ring. You need a big house. And it's all of these things that put people in an area where they have to focus on the exterior and the exterior instead of the interior of what they really want. Hey, there and you go. What really do you really want, man? That's, that's such a great comment. I hate to interrupt you there, man, but that's truly it right there. No one really sits down to ask, what do I really want? And uh, particularly with regard to these things. Now, there's nothing wrong with getting a college degree, getting a diamond ring, getting married, going on vacation, buying, you know, the 10 cars that on average we're all going to buy over our lifetime. Uh, the question is, how do you buy it? What's the right way to make those major purchases like a college degree or a vacation or your house or whatever it might be? That to me, as a certified financial planner, became the most compelling question in finance. How do you make major purchases? More important than uh, what you got on your mutual funds last year, more important than the interest rate on your home mortgage, more important than whether or not you got points back on your credit card. I don't care. I'll say it this way. I care about those things. Those are important. Yeah. But more important is how you make your major purchases because that's millions of dollars um, in opportunity cost. 100%. And 
we're definitely going to get to that. Let me just ask you a quick question. So you graduate and then you go for, then what ends up happening for, to get to your point of a certified financial planner? Cause that is not an easy exam. <laughs> no. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Thanks for bringing me to this. Yeah. So the, the, the first six months after college, they defer your student debt or they did at that time. Um, it's been deferred for years, you know, in the last three years here. We've at all, this point. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Um, but at that point, they gave you six months basically to get your feet under you, find yourself a job and start working. Well, that was in 2008 when no one was hiring. All right. So my six six months went by pretty fast. And then I'm faced with this mega payment uh, to a student loan. And that was the first time I really realized that, oh, yeah, they want that money back. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I had to get a couple of side jobs and I worked at a restaurant. I worked uh, for a property management company. I had a wet dry vac sucking, you know, unmentionable stuff out from under an elevator. I mean, this is this is the glory days after you got your master's degree to get down on your hands and knees and with a toothbrush scrubbing the tile <laughs> floors, you know, um, and and uh, serving tables and had a day job uh, for working for a CPA at the same time. And in the midst of all that, I was hearing those calls and conversations that the CPA would make saying, I'm sorry, Mr. Client, Mrs. Client. Uh, I know you're 63 years old, but I just lost you half your life savings. Now that to oh me was a wake up call. Yeah. Like who would want, I, I wanted nothing to do with that. So I almost left the financial industry um, before I even got into it. Really. I was mainly just help think, thank goodness. I was just sort of helping her with prepping her tax forms and stuff like that. But yeah, you you don't want anything to do with that kind of conversation to ruin someone's life like that. No, thank you. Uh, and so that's sort of, the journey I was on at that time and our game plan, my wife and I was just crush that debt, make as much income as we could pay it off using the debt snowball method, uh, which is basically a method of paying the debts off one at a time. Uh, you pay yeah. your minimums and all your big debts and the smallest debt, you just throw everything you can at the smallest debt and then you move on to the next. I had all my spreadsheets laid out. You know, I was all like motivated and we got about halfway through that project before I started getting that empty feeling in my stomach, that feeling that I had just basically wasted the most valuable, most precious dollars of my life uh, on a on a, somebody else's financial future. You know, Sally Mae yeah. and all of the snakes that we borrowed money from were getting wealthy off of my back, off of all my, you know, scrubbing with the toothbrush uh, and all that vac- wet dry vacuuming and all those servant tables and all those hours at the CPA firm. They, somebody else, they meaning the banks were making bank off of my back. And I hated that feeling. And I hated the idea that I'd never see that money that I'd sent off to the banksters work for me or grow for me ever again. And I wanted to get out of that problem as fast as possible, but I didn't know any other way. What's the other alternative than to just pay your debts off and move on. But thankfully uh, it didn't end there. So that that's sort of how it felt those first few years after graduating college. I- I can imagine. And at least you had the wherewithal to have a plan and move forward with that plan and stick to that plan. Cause there's a lot of people that I've talked to and just, you, you hear the stories where it's, I didn't even know how much I had. Like, yeah. Where did that come from? Like, yeah. Yeah. What happened? <laughs> right. Well, and maybe your story is student loans, but maybe your story is credit cards or, you know, a too big a house that you bought or credit, you know, whatever it might be, parent parent loans, yeah. whatever it might be. But um, you're right about compound interest. It, leverage is wonderful when it's in your hands, but when it's being leveraged against you, that can be a terrifying feeling. 
100 that can be a scary time and when you don't know how much you owe or how much is going to be or what's the payment because in in those situations like the credit card's fine but we don't learn that hey it's got to be paid off every month you can use it as an assistant don't use it as hey jordan got an extra 10 grand this month because i got a new credit card (laughs) right yeah yeah use the bank for your convenience don't let the bank use you for their convenience 100 percent. so let's dive into it mark so you end up going this cfp route and and you ended up paying off all the debt how did that you want the short answer or the longer answer (laughs) i'm interested in whatever you're willing to offer all right all right uh well um the biggest problem again that i was feeling was that sugar high of paying off my debt and getting that empty feeling you know you pay your debts off and that feels great for about 15 seconds <laughs> and then you look at your savings account or your checking account or whatever and you're looking at the zeros in there and you're thinking to yourself wow you know i just lost all that money that could have earned for my future yeah. you know i told you the the value of our student debt was about 120 grand when we left college but that's not the true cost of our debt Oh, Even yeah. though the the price was one hundred and twenty thousand, the true cost was whatever one hundred and twenty thousand would have earned for me had I left that money invested somewhere instead. Uh, and that's that's what I'm talking about when I say the the cost of college could be well north of a million dollars for many people. Even though the price of that tuition might be a lot less over your lifetime, what could that money grow to? Does that make sense? If you yeah, I mean, if if someone handed you or myself or anyone one hundred and twenty thousand, and they put it in the stock, the stock market, real estate, put it in anything, pretty much, besides the bank account, you, I'd have a very difficult time seeing forty years down the line that that's not significantly higher amount. Yeah, right. I'm with you all the way there. Yeah, but the the trouble is, as you said, uh, compound interest works in both ways. Uh, so yeah. Yeah, for me, getting my certified financial planner uh, designation was a big journey, but it was so fun, uh, and I totally geeked out on it. You know, uh, <laughs> I mean, my favorite book of the Bible is the Book of Numbers, uh, so yeah. I've always been a big fan of numbers, if if you will. And I love the uh, <laughs> just joking about the book piece, but uh, I do think that uh, numbers tell a story, and I think you can really learn a lot when you understand the way money really works. And every country is different. Every person's situation is different. But as a CFP, uh, now I can tell you there are 400 plus places to park money. You mentioned a few stock market, real estate, savings account, but there's 400 plus and they all do different things. And we're all told to do certain things with our money. I mentioned this earlier, but you know, where you put your money makes it act different. And if we do what other people want us to do with our money, we'll end up serving their financial plan not ours. And so becoming a certified financial planner was a wake-up call to what do I truly want my money doing for me? And I would read the books and I would take the tests. And it was always first and foremost about how is this going to impact my financial future and that of my family? How can I change my family tree with this very important information? Because again, I didn't grow up with much money, didn't learn about any of this stuff, but getting that <clears throat> getting that certified financial planner you know, uh, degree, whatever you want to call it, certification, I should say, uh, was a wake-up call to what do I truly want and learning to ask questions of my clients. What do you truly want your money doing for you? 
And that became the the really the ultimate question in my listening sessions that I now have with clients all across the country. We'll have financial consults with folks one-on-one over Zoom like this or over the phone. Yeah. And we'll just ask them, hey, you know, what do you truly want? Among, you know, among you know, 50 other questions that we get into, we ask them, what do you want your money doing for you? And that question can reveal a lot about what people's desires are and their goals. And it's so interesting, such a simple question, but it's never been asked before. Uh, Your HR department doesn't ask you, what do you want your money doing for you? They just hand you the 401k and get out of here, you know, get back to work. You know, Um, your, your buddy doesn't ask you what he wants your money, what you want your money doing for you. He just tells you about the latest crypto scheme. Uh, or the latest real estate deal. So ask yourself, what do you want your money doing for you? What if if you were Pope of money, what sort of characteristics or attributes or adjectives would you like your money to have? Uh, and make a list. In fact, if you do nothing else after this episode, just grab a legal pad or something to write with and and just start making a list of what you want your money doing for you. And when you when you talk about this money doing for you, what do you what are some of the answers you hear? Is it like, I want passive income where money's coming from all directions? Or is it, I just want my money to grow? Like, I could see this going a thousand areas. And then yeah. some people go, I don't even know how to answer that one. <laughs> like, it's hard because yeah, we, don't, that a lot. we don't really even know yeah, what, how to answer. It's, uh, we, don't, we haven't been given the, the privilege to think. Uh, there's, a, a, there's a quote, um, uh, 20% of people think. Another 20% of people think that they think, and then the rest of us would rather die than think. And so I'm really speaking, I hope, to the people who are ready to think today. Uh, and, you know, it really does come down to what is possible. Now, let's blue sky think here for a minute. You brought up some great ones, man. Uh, money, one of its attributes is passive income. That's a great one. Another is growth, compound growth. That's a great characteristic or attribute for money. Um, I could also add a few others and we can kind of do this for a minute if you want to kind of brainstorm together. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So how about, uh, again, I don't have a list or anything in front of me. I'm just thinking back to my own list. You can add to this if you want to, but how about um, liquidity? So access to money. A lot of people have told me and myself included, I wanted access to money, use use of the money, not locking it up, not keeping it in jail not putting a lot of restrictions or penalties or whatever around getting access to the money. That'd be a big one for me. Um, How about uh, privacy? You know, uh, sometimes accounts might be made public for everybody to see. Like when you die, there's a thing called probate and a lot of people will see everything you own. And you know, know (laughs) yeah, isn't that interesting? So a lot of creditors and like, you know, uh, sharks will come out of the, water and, and try to say that, hey, you know, Jordan owed me a bunch of money and your his kids won't get anything because he owed me all this money. Well, if it's private and outside of probate, that won't even show up and you can directly give to the people or the causes that you care about. So that's a big one for me. Um, also creditor proof, meaning if you were to go through a bankruptcy, it wouldn't show up in the courts. You could keep that particular money rather than handing it over to somebody if you happen to go through a bankruptcy proceeding. Um, how about uh, tax advantages? Like I, I know that a lot of times people put money in something without thinking through the tax nature of what they're doing. Like a, let's say a 401k, I, I'll have a conversation with folks and they'll tell me, well, you know, Mark, I don't, I don't trust that over my lifetime, taxes will always be this low. I think taxes are going to go up over my lifetime. 
And, you know, most economists would agree with them, by the way, that taxes are going to go up over the long term. Uh, how could they not? Um, I, I jokingly say the party that's going to win the next election, I don't know the answer to that, but I know the long term winner of all elections is the math party and math will win. And that means taxes are going up over the long term. So when would you like to pay your taxes when they're low or when they're high? Well, yeah. people say, obviously, I want to pay my taxes, Mark, when they're low, of course, Mark. And I'll say, well, how does your 401k work? Do you pay taxes on your 401k now or later? And they think, and they're like, well, I thought you don't pay taxes is what is oftentimes people say, well, well I didn't know you had to, right? Yeah. I mean, most people have no idea about how the 401k works. And it was really interesting. I was reading uh, Tony Robbins, Money Master the Game, yeah. and he brings up the concept that what people don't realize is that 1% charge or that half a percent each year because it's uh, not a, the account isn't uh, passive, it's an active account. So they take their management fees and they just rot. Like it, yeah. it erodes so much mm-hmm. earnings. And if you have the expectation and you talk to people who are 40, 50, 60, as they get older, it becomes scarier and scarier. And they have to trust that this is correct or this is the only alternative. Because if they don't, they're like, did I just waste a bunch of time? Which is an even scarier proposition. You bring up a great point. I mean, taxes is one pickpocket in your money, but I would say fees are another one. So when we're talking about what do we want our money doing for us, it needs to be efficient not riddled with fees and costs and commissions and whatever else you could tack on there and tax efficient, I would add to that too. So, you know, the list could keep going on and on here, but um, I would just say, hey, if you get nothing else out of this episode, make a list of what you want your money doing for you and then go search for it. I think too often we're told, here's the label and then we never stop to think, what's the function? You know, here's the label, but what's the function? So I was actually going to ask you that. So like, if you look at like liquidity, liquidity can pull, uh, the stock market pulls up liquidity, crypto pulls liquidity, real estate, not really, not too much liquidity. Um, and you'd have to run this through all of these different opportunities. But what what are even the options that people can place it with that you think satisfy some of these means? Yeah, that's the trick right there because you can you're exactly right. You might get one or two or three of your wish list um with one particular asset like real estate creates some passive income, but there's no guarantees with real estate, it's not liquid. Yeah. Um and you know, the, you could kind of go down your your wish list and sort of see, but what's so interesting is most of the common places Americans put their money is running counter to everything they believe about what they want. Now, um, that's a big deal. That causes stress. When you do things against your beliefs, even subconsciously, it causes a tremendous amount of stress and anxiety. This is why we're so stressed out, I think, uh, financially speaking as a nation. Um, you know, in fact, it shortens your lifespan uh, through stress, right? So I would, uh, yeah, I would definitely agree with that. I just wanted to bring up the point that you were bring, discussing on the, about the stress to how it affects our mindset there is so much that happens when you are financially not where you need to be. If you become desperate, people can feel it. It becomes a very scary situation because 
it affects your mental fortitude. It affects the way you think. It affects the way you treat people. So like one of the main things is getting financially fit where you're like, okay, we are at least trending in the correct direction. We are going mm-hmm. up each month, whatever it is. Yeah. Because everything can be so short term and not that long term view, which is missed. Yep. I tell you, man, um, you know, I really want uh, a six pack of abs, but I also <laughs> love chocolate ice cream. And so I act against my beliefs all the time. And I would say that that runs counter and somewhere deep inside, I'm sure that causes some stress that just that, that, uh, that whatever you want to call it, that action against my beliefs. So yeah, I think we all want many of the things that you and I just talked about. So where are good places for us to park our cash that it does what we want it to do? Well, um, for me, my list, uh, I found one of the most compelling tools in the financial universe that seems to meet all of my requirements. You know, I, I, I was trying to take the label off, trying to keep the bias out because we're all biased toward you hear crypto in the news, you hear real estate in the news, you hear how bad annuities are, you hear about how wonderful real estate is, how how terrible savings accounts are. Um, but I wanted to get my bias out of there and just look at the function. And then of all things, what bubbled to the surface for me was a dividend paying whole life insurance contract. To me, that was meeting all of my own personal financial needs. So I'll kind of go run through that short list that you and I just yeah, mentioned absolutely. off the cuff. Uh, it grows at a competitive rate of return. Not tremendous. We're not talking triple digits or even double digits return, but it's a nice keep up with inflation kind of return. And it grows on a guaranteed and predictable basis. So this means there's no more market volatility with that money. Every single year, no matter what the market's doing, like it's down this year right now, it's in a bear market yeah. as we're recording this. Uh, and and yet all of my policies that I have are hitting all-time record highs, every single one of them. And that's guaranteed to happen for the rest of my life. That's a pretty cool feeling. All right. Yeah. So that's the first piece is that it grows competitively, grows guaranteed. Uh, next, it's accessible money. It's liquid. So I can get access to it when I'm you know, 27, 57, 97. I don't have to wait for some magical age like my 401ks make me wait. Yeah. You know, I don't have to beg some sort of banker to get access to money like a HELOC or or a credit card or something. I don't have to be approved to get access to my own stinking money. Uh, All right. So that's the next is I can use that money. And it's also available designed under the tax law to be totally income tax free. Tax free. I love the sound of those words, man. Uh, So, (laughs) you know, 0% 0% tax bracket. I could be pulling six figures a year off my accounts or even seven figures a year off my policies. And I still report $0 to the IRS. That sounds like freedom right there. Because if even if they double taxes in the future, zero times anything is still zero. Zero. Yeah. yeah. So I love that uh, particular piece. Uh, third, uh, it is life insurance. So it's again, it's life insurance, but it's not the kind of life insurance that um, we're used to. There's two kinds of life insurance out there. There's the kind you rent and the kind you own. Renting yeah. insurance is just called term insurance. You rent it for a little bit of time and then it expires. It's kind of like renting an apartment. You know, you rent it for a year or two and then the landlord raises the rent on you. And at some point they'll kick you out and you don't yeah. earn any wealth or accumulate any wealth in that rented apartment. That's how yeah. it works with term insurance. They can kick you out after a little bit of time. They keep raising the price on the term insurance policy. With dividend-paying whole life insurance, you own the asset. It's yours for life, 
You get to accumulate wealth within that policy. And at some point when you do pass away, you'll leave your family more than you've saved for them by a long shot inside that policy. Um, But I'm cool with that. I love that. But I try to actually limit the size of the death benefit. And this is what makes this so different than old-fashioned life insurance. Yeah. And so we refer to this particular kind of life insurance as something called bank on yourself designed whole life. And what this means, uh, and I'll be done here in just a minute and get your feedback. uh, I shrink down and the way I design this for my clients and for myself is I'll shrink down the death benefit as much as humanly possible while keeping on the right side of the tax law and then flood the policy with a lot more cash, the stuff you can spend while you're still alive. Because it's way more fun to spend money while you're alive, in my opinion. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so absolutely, that, that cash is now yours to do whatever you want with. And one of the things we can do is borrow against it. So wow. let's say that you want to get a, a nice car. You want to get a fifty thousand dollar vehicle, and yeah. you you could either pay cash for it, right? Save in a savings account and pay cash. Two, you could finance the car with you know financing department and pay a bunch of interest. And now you're on their hook to pay 800 bucks a month for, for that car or whatever it is, or you could lease the thing. That's the normal way. Most people buy cars, pay cash, finance it or lease it. But when you have one of these policies and let's say you've built up enough to have $50,000 that you can access and borrow against, you've got 50 grand, you've got a car that's costing you 50 grand. What I would do in this case is I would borrow against one of my policies and go into the dealer and pay cash for the car. Now I'm driving my car around town, but my policy did not stop compounding or growing. That compound guaranteed increase of my cash every year is still yeah. earning interest on the full 50,000 bucks, even oh, wow. the amount that I borrowed out and paid cash for the car. Now, to me, that solves the problem of breaking compound growth, which is the problem we all face. The most important problem in the financial life of most people is how do I not break compound growth? Um, Because if I don't have to break compound growth, I've got infinite efficiency that I can live on for the rest of my life and passive income and more. But we keep breaking compound growth. We save money in a savings account and then spend it. Save, 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 spend. Or we go into debt, climb, climb, climb out. Go into debt, climb, climb, climb out. This breaks that cycle and helps you lift off from net zero and gives you an ever-increasing compound net worth, and you still buy the stuff you need to buy in life. So I mentioned, and I'll wrap up with this, I mentioned earlier, the biggest problem, the most important hinge of your financial door is the, how do you buy big stuff question? How do you make those major purchases? The college degree, the cars, the the business equipment, the college education, all that stuff. I think using one of these policies could be one of the most uh, important choices you can make for how you make major purchases because it continues to grow and compound as if you hadn't touched a dime of the money. All right. So I'm off my soapbox. That's what I found. Thoughts, feedback, ideas. Yeah, that's really interesting because I've heard a couple of different things similar, not similar, but like kind of like that with the, with the Rockefellers did like back in the mm-hmm. day, they would do this because it passes the money down very efficiently. It doesn't, it's protected from bankruptcies and you never know where that's going to come. And so when you do this with people, what percentage do you think is put in? Like for, let's say it's an entrepreneur, right? Someone's an entrepreneur and they want to 
get rid of their bank or would they put in 10%? Would they put in 20, 50? Like, is this their new savings account? Like, how, do, how does that work? All of those could be correct answers. Of course, the correct answer is it depends, but that's a boring answer, you know, um, but that is the correct answer. Situational, yeah. Good, good CFP answer there. Um, but, you know, let's talk about it. How, you know, if your money, if you put your money into one of these policies, it's still safe and liquid yeah. for any of your needs. So if you put your money into something where it's safe and liquid for whatever you need, does that take away any of your options or does it give you more options? So we have folks putting yeah. away 3% of their money, 10%, 50%, even some people putting 100% of their income. I don't recommend everyone just rush out and do any of those numbers that I just said, but yeah. all are possible. And it comes down to what your particular needs and goals are. But think about it again, if your money is safe and liquid for your life's needs, whatever they might be, does it change anything? Does it, does it paint you into a corner? Does it take away any of your options or does it just give you more and more options uh, to, to be able to bank on yourself? Yeah. And it's so interesting because it's, not the conventional thought process. Like as they're explaining it, my head sitting there and I'm like, well, you put in a hundred percent and like, I guess you have a bunch of loans out on yourself that you have to pay yourself. Like, you know what I mean? We, we, instead we were so taught that the 401k automatic. Yes. Good. Right. Done. Like yeah. everyone's just taught that. Like, and it's, it, it is these questioning, but I, I see it with myself, even knowing all of these different systems, I'm still like, I can feel mm -hmm. the friction in inside myself being like, isn't it, isn't it interesting? interesting? Like the 401k is so young. We've all been mesmerized by this thing called the 401k. It's so young. It's only 41 years old. Wow. And that means it's not even old enough to retire yet. Yeah. So where did it, where was it written on what tablets of stone is it written that we must get a 401k to be financially successful? It's not, it's not, it's just yeah. not. In fact, before the 401k, where did most Americans put their savings? Guess what? Whole life insurance and annuities. Yeah. But the, the major savings vehicle has been forgotten as we've moved to become a nation of speculators. Uh, and how is that working out for us? You know, retirement readiness is at an all-time low. Well, that's the interesting thing I find is that there's so many different options at this point that it can be kind of intimidating to where it does make sense to get exposure to these different areas. Mm -hmm. um, not saying like one's right or one's wrong, but there's just so many options out there that like, does it hurt to try? Yeah, no. right. Like, right. And yeah. Yeah, and you brought up a point about, do you have these loans? So I want to mention quickly, when you do borrow from one of these policies, there's no required repayment plan. The, the insurance company has an agreement with you that you know you can borrow from these policies at any time for any reason. You don't have to have some sort of banker approve you. Uh, there's no question. Hey, what are you going to use the money for? Or, hey, how are you going to pay yeah. us back? If you never pay off the loan, it's just deducted from your death benefit when you pass away. As long as that policy is enforced for the rest of your life, you've got a line of credit against that policy that could last as long as you do. Now, I always quickly say it's important to pay back the loans. Why? Because you're probably going to want to buy another car someday or go on yeah. the next vacation or send the next kid to college. So responsibly paying off your loans, but now you're the banker and now you get to decide the repayment plan. If you need to skip a few payments or a few years, you don't have to wait for Congress to approve some deferral yeah. of student loans. You get to do it yourself, man. Uh, so yeah. that's what I'm excited about and what I love getting to help clients do.
Yeah, absolutely. And who do you think this is, uh, like, who do you think could use this? Well, there's a lot of folks who shouldn't do this. And I'll start with that first. Um, yeah. It's it's really not for folks who are just desperately looking for the highest rate of return possible. As yeah. I mentioned, it's it's not an investment. It's going to be boring middle single digit returns. Now that's every single year guaranteed yeah. and it's a tax-free return. So yeah. what would you need to get in a taxable brokerage account or a 401k to equal, call it 5% or whatever, tax-free in one of these policies? That's so that's the first one. Don't do this if you need overnight success because this is a long-term yeah. financial goal right here. Yeah. Uh, next, you got to save. So you can't do this if you're in, you know, in debt up to your eyeballs and willing to go further into debt and not able to have a sustainable <sighs> path. So yeah. you know, I'll quickly say you can be in debt and still start one of these. I used, while I was still in my mega student loan problem, <sighs> I used the policy while I was in debt. I stopped overpaying on all my student loan debts. And I followed a path that I now have trademarked and call the debt snowbank method. Not yeah. snowball, but snowbank. Get it? Yeah. Uh, so we're packing money into our policies. That grows. Our student loans are slowly coming down. And one by one, I just borrowed against my policy to wipe out my student loan debt. This, oh, wow. This actually was awesome because now my policy is still compounding toward my retirement and my future. And I'm also done with the snakes and Sally Mae and her cronies and all those guys. So this is, to me, better than being debt-free because now we've got compound wealth growing for my wife and I, not just getting back to the starting line that's of our interesting. race. Yeah, that's really interesting approach that you took the money against the student loan. Not against it, but instead, like you pay the minimums, and then you take the difference and put it into this policy. Policy grows. Each year, you go, boom. Just knock them out. We, we bought back our debt. You know, we became our own banker. And now the debts to our policies are all paid off. And, you know, we're completely done with all the student loans from years ago. And now our, our policies are being used policies for other things. So That's incredible. That's incredible, Mark. That's really cool. What uh, Thanks, thank you. you know, it's a it's a story that has could be repeated and multiplied across this country. Imagine if just 10% of Americans did this or something like this. Uh, yeah. what, what kind of change that would give to all the problems that financially we face as a country? Absolutely. Oh, there's uh, so much knowledge here. I wish we could go longer, um, but I know our time's winding down. Mark, where can people find you? Well, if you'd like to see what this might look like with your particular situation in mind, uh, you can find me at Kickstart withmark.com. We can have a 15-minute strategic introduction conversation, get to know you a bit. That's kickstartwithmark.com. Awesome. I'll put that in the show notes. And I really appreciate you coming on. This was awesome. Thanks, Jordan. Thanks for all you do. Thank you for reaching the end of the podcast. For that, we'll give you a complimentary coaching session in the link below with Edwards Consulting. Hope to see you there and have a great day and keep clocking in.